The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Uh, in the midst of Daniel 7, which records Daniel's vision of the four beasts representing the success of uh, human governments, we saw this last week in a little more detail, and if you recall, we came upon some scripture that talked about Christ, and I said we were going to move it to this week so we could spend a little more time and be a little more devoted uh, to this, this matter. Uh, but there are a record of Daniel's vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the verses before these, leading up to this, talk about how the kingdoms of the world will be judged. And then right in the middle of this, when we might be expecting God to be glorified, we read verses 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this is an unusual and fascinating passage because it presents the vision of Jesus that's not found elsewhere in the Old Testament. So let me just take a second to talk about the Old Testament witness. When I say it's not the vision isn't presented anywhere else in the Old Testament, I'm not implying that there are no other prophecies in the Old Testament concerning Jesus. Uh, not only are there clear prophecies of Christ, but there are all also intimations of the plurality within the Godhead that give us an understanding about God and his person. The first uh, intimation of the plurality in the Godhead is in the first verse of the Bible where the plural name for God, Elohim, occurs. Students of the Hebrew, am I getting some echo here? kind of bouncing back in my ears here. Uh, students of Hebrew rightly point out that this does not necessarily imply an existence of more than one God or a plurality. Uh, it can be used to talk about uh, a God of all gods. But also when we look through this, we see in some verses that are coming up in Genesis 1.26 when he says, let us make man in our image in our likeness, in Genesis 1.26. Now, there are verses like that scattered throughout the whole Old Testament, and there are many more that we could refer to, but our time does not permit us because of where we're headed. But from Abraham to Isaac, there are many verses talking about Christ in the Old Testament and also about his pre-incarnate existing in certain uh, uh, items or certain experiences. But what we come back to now if you recall, and we've seen it every single week, that is God controls history. This is the reoccurring theme of Daniel and one that we will continue to see repeatedly. Unusual and unexpected as Daniel's vision of the Lord Jesus Christ may be, it's precisely what we should expect at this point. In fact, it's the high point of the book. What is the theme of Daniel. Well, we saw it at the very beginning back in chapter 2. 
when, or when Nebuchadnezzar took the holy articles from the temple of God in Jerusalem and carried them back to Babylon where he laid them up in the temple of his God. It was a way of declaring that in Nebuchadnezzar's judgment, the gods he worshipped were more powerful than the Jewish god Jehovah. But were they? It certainly seemed that way. Jerusalem had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar's armies. However, the entire development of the book shows that God's answered the question is that he is still in control of history. Although kingdoms like Babylon may triumph for a time, he is still in control. And you and I see that today, don't we? When we see evil triumphing in certain places, we see things happening in our own country, and sometimes we wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? But the thing we need to take from Daniel is to understand that no matter what is going on, he is still in control of history. And his plan is working to his purpose. As a result, the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar would eventually fall to the kingdom of the Medes and Persians under Darius. The kingdom of Darius would eventually fall to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. The Greeks' kingdom would eventually fall to the Romans. And at the end of the long history, which God was controlling, would come to the eternal kingdom that, like a rock, would destroy the other kingdoms and grow into a large mountain to fill the earth. And that was exactly what Nebuchadnezzar saw when he looked at the great statue. So how can mere human kingdoms triumph? No matter how blessed by God, what are we to take away from this? When God told David that he would establish his kingdom forever, David understood this difficulty, and he protested. David was thinking of a human kingdom that never, never uh, lasts. They're never forever. How then can a kingdom grow to be a great mountain? Well, the answer is Daniel 7, 13 through 14. The one who is established in the mountain uh, this, this kingdom that God is going to establish throughout the earth, while he is like a son of man, that is a human being. How can this be possible? Well, it's an interesting thing here because the one who is like the son of man is also God. He is the God-man. And his kingdom is to be established by God in spite of the rebellious opposition of Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and any other world leader that may rise. So this brings us to a point that really is important to you and I this morning, and that is Jesus, the Son of Man. To my mind, this is the most interesting thing of all and it's the way Daniel refers back to Daniel 7, verse 13 in his teaching and the way he applied that term to himself. There are many titles for Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, there is the Lord, Christ, Messiah, the Good Shepherd, the Bridegroom. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. But Jesus never used these titles of himself. Others gave him these titles. He did not even use the word Messiah except on one occasion when he was speaking to the woman of Samaria in John 4, verse 26. The only biblical title that Jesus did use, and that almost exclusively, 
was the title Son of Man, which he got from Daniel. 69 times in the synoptics it's used, and 12 times in John. So there are two key reasons why Jesus did this. And these reasons are important because I think it will give us clarity on his own teaching and why he used this term and how it gives us a deeper understanding of his ministry. First, it was an ideal title for combining the two chief things he needed that needed to be said about his person. Namely, that he was fully man, and at the same time, he was fully God. The truth that he was fully man is conveyed by the term itself. For the word son of man in Aramaic or Hebrew idiom simply means man or human being. For example, if an Aramaic or Hebrew person was speaking about someone who was a sinner, he would call him a son of sin. If he was talking about somebody who was wealthy, he would call him a son of wealth. And so when the Lord referred to himself as the son of man, he was merely calling himself a man so far as the literal translation goes. And that alone is significant because it reveals the delight the Lord Jesus Christ had as the eternal son of God in identifying with us. He could have used terms that stressed his deity, but instead, he stressed his humanity. It's as if he were saying, I am one of you, and I am happy to be. The Lord Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven, took on the form of a man to be with us, to pay the price for our sins, and to identify with us as a man. But, the, but there's more to this. For Jesus did not only refer to himself as a son of man, which would have expressed only his humanity, but he referred to himself as the son of man, which means the son of man referred to in Daniel. That is, the son of man who came on the clouds of heaven and to whom the ancient of days gave authority, glory, and sovereign power. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he did the same thing at his trial. If you recall, when asked by Caiaphas whether he was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus replied in Matthew 26, verse 64, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. This is a clear reference to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And it is a way of saying, I am the divine king prophesied by Daniel. And of course, this is precisely how the Jewish leaders took it. Because right after this, we hear Caiaphas crying out in verse 65, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And so they condemned him. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he used the term son of man. The second reason Jesus used the title son of man was because it was less explicit and he could infuse it with his own meaning and avoid wrong expectations of his contemporaries. There were tremendous expectations by the messianic, of a messianic deliverer in Christ's day. The country 
was under Roman rule. They were crying out for the Redeemer that they had known promised in the Old Testament. And anytime somebody came along who was above average, hundreds, sometimes thousands of people would follow, hoping that he was the promised one. They even had a list of questions, much like what they asked of John the Baptist in John 1, 19 through 28. John had a delegation come to him, and they asked him, are you the Messiah? And they had criteria, and they were asking, but John kept saying, no, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. And so they finally left him and paid no more attention to him. Even when John said in, one, in John 1, 23, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they certainly didn't believe him when he identified the Lord Jesus of Nazareth as the one who he was preparing the way for. The incident shows how intense the Jewish expectation was for a political deliverer. If Jesus had said, yes, I am the Messiah, if he used any of the titles usually identified with his deity, the Jews would have thought him to be simply a political leader. And they would have followed him in the belief that he was a mere, mere man like David, whom God had sent to drive out the Romans and set up their earthly kingdom. They weren't interested in spiritual men. They wanted one to ride in on a white horse and to set up the kingdom. And of course, when Jesus came in riding on a donkey, coming through the sheep gate where sheep were brought to be sacrificed, they gave him no mind. They paid no attention. By rejecting these titles and instead choosing the less explicit but intriguing title of Son of Man, Jesus was able to identify himself in his own way and avoid misunderstanding. Now, the important questions are, how did Jesus himself interpret the title? And what meaning did he give to the figure of Son of Man in referring to Daniel? Well, there are several things that's important for us to get to really grasp this title, Son of Man. Number one, he used it to teach his preexistence. In John 3, verse 13, he says, No one has ascended unto heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. They would have understood this as a direct reference to Daniel. They would have perceived Jesus to be teaching that he was the exact same figure that Daniel talked about back in the 500 B.C. range, a prophet from before. Number two, he used the Son of Man to teach that he must suffer. And this was the area that was difficult for them to grasp. Now, nothing in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14, lets on about his suffering. Daniel 9, 26 uh, gives some suggestion to it. But Jesus always understood and taught that that was the role he came to fulfill. Now, we have this reference to his death on the cross in John 3, verses 13 through, or 14 through 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And you see, this was the hardest thing for Jesus to get across. 
but it was because his contemporaries were thinking of a political Messiah. They wanted a hero, not a savior, who was going to be crucified. If Jesus had described himself as Messiah, that's all they would have ever heard. Instead of calling himself the Son of Man and using these terms, they would have expected him to be just like David and wanting him to be this political figure. Number three, he used it to teach that a person must be personally joined to him to be saved. John 6, verse 53 through 54, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last days. Now, as the chapter proceeds, it's clear that the eating and drinking is a metaphor for faith. To be saved, a person must believe on Jesus, and that belief is a thing that makes Christ as much a part of this, of this believer as eating or drinking would be. So the reality is accepting Christ makes a radical change in our hearts. We want to learn about Christ. We want to be in his word. We want to assimilate everything about him. To help us, he gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And so the true child of God is surrendered in mind, body, and spirit to God. And this is what he's trying to get across, that he must be a literal part of us. And that's the beauty that we find all through Scripture about the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit, that guides us into all truth, that teaches us the very words of Christ so that he can become all of us, that his spirit bears witness with our spirit and draws us in deep fellowship with himself. Number four, he used it to teach about the final judgment. In John 5, verses 25 through 27, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now, this is another reference to Daniel as Jesus' use of the words authority and because he is the son of man makes clear. And Daniel, the one who is like the son of man, participates with the ancients of days in judgment. And it is a consequence that judgment and authority and glory and sovereign power are given to him. Jesus claims to be judge of all men because he is the son of man in the days of his flesh he was the gentle jesus who surrendered himself to death for our salvation he was the gentle jesus who showed mercy he was the one who came to sinners to offer grace and mercy and salvation he is the one that you recall when the adulterous woman came he raised her to her feet when her accusers left and said, I don't accuse you. Go and sin no more. 
And he's the same Jesus that offers to you and I today that same grace. He's the same Jesus who offers to all of us amazing grace. In spite of anything we've done, in spite of how bad our life may be or how good it is, his grace is sufficient to cancel all sin when we give ourselves to him. And that is the beauty that he is teaching here. What is your relationship to him this morning? Is he Lord of your life? This son of man who is identifying with you and me, this son of man who came, the Bible tells us that by one man's sin, sin entered the world and death by it. So Jesus came to be a man. But because he was the son of man, fully God, fully human, he was without sin, born of a virgin. So that when he died on the cross, he was the perfect lamb slain for us. And this is why Jesus used the term son of man to make clear to us that by his death, we can have forgiveness of sins. Now, this makes clear to us now that one day, all humanity will bow. All humanity will bow. One day, every knee will bow before the rightful authority of Jesus Christ. Daniel says in Daniel 7, 14, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worship him. And then Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Imagine all creation bowing the knee before God. Everyone under the earth everyone who is unsaved, everyone who has rejected Christ will one day bow the knee and give him glory. And all of us here this morning who have given our hearts and lives to him will be in his presence, bowing before him. But one day, those who reject him will be forced to, to bow at the last judgment at the great white throne. Will you be one of the thousands sitting around the throne, singing praises to him. There's coming a time, folks, when we will sing his praises. And when you come into the service and you worship, and I know maybe you're tired and rushed around and it's kind of hard to get your mind and heart in sync, but the reality is we will worship him forever. We will bow our knees to him and give him glory. But the thing I want to really emphasize, and, I, and I've said it several times, but I just want to make sure it's clear again. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, we still have the gentle Jesus. We still have the Jesus that is offered to us that grace. And we would pray that you would understand that, that the Spirit would convict you and draw you to him, that you might have eternal life and one day stand with us and worship and praise him. The Bible talks in Revelation about those sitting around the throne and those lifting him up. 
and Revelation 5, verses 11 through 13 says, When I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Will you be part of that number? Will you be there when we're able to sing when the victory is ours? When that stone uncut by human hand has come and destroyed all the kingdoms of the earth and his kingdom is set up like a mountain filling the earth, will you be part of that number? I thought it would be appropriate this morning if we would practice being there. And so I've asked Dan to come, and I want us all to stand, and I want us to sing together. We're going to sing it twice. That great chorus, worthy is the Lamb. And I want you to sing it out like you're standing at the front. I want you to sing it out like we're trying to blow the roof off this place. And as if Jesus Christ was here right now in your presence. Okay? Singing to Christ. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy to receive power and honor and wisdom and praise. Obviously, I'm not a song leader. But if you can't sing any better than that, you're in the presence of Jesus Christ. All right? I want to really hear you put it out on this last one. Let's go. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Worthy is the Lamb. the 
Father, you are so worthy. You are worthy to receive power and honor and glory and blessing and wisdom and wealth and might. Everything that we can muster up in our being, you are worthy to receive it. As we'll one day cast our crowns at your feet to give you glory, may we all together understand the incredible worthiness, the glory, the worthy lamb that you are. You saved us. You bought us with your life. And we will one day worship you in great glory. So I pray now, Lord, that you would just remind us afresh the Son of God, the Son of Man, who came to deliver us. And may we have a united heart to give you the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'll give you five minutes to grab your kids and then we'll come back for that quick business meeting and we'll be very quick and we'll be out of here, okay?